Here's a few quick notes about the show. Southern Girl Crime Stories is a podcast focused mostly on lesser-known true crime cases, consisting of cold cases, soft cases, identified Jane and John Doe's, along with missing persons and murder victims. You can follow the show on social media, on Instagram at Southern Girl Crime Stories, on Twitter at SG Crime Stories, or search Facebook for Southern Girl Crime Stories. If you're interested in getting some merch, visit my YouTube channel, or you can donate directly via Venmo or PayPal following the links in the description. You can submit case suggestions to southerngirlcrimestories at gmail.com or DM me on social media. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories along with photos of victims, suspects, locations of murders, and more. Cody Lee Johnson was born on April 8, 1988, to parents Sherry and David Johnson. At the age of 25, Cody was living in Kalispell, Montana, and met a young woman named Jordan Lynn Graham at the church he attended. 21-year-old Jordan grew up in church and was heavily involved in her church activities, the church daycare, and ministries at Faith Baptist Church in Kalispell. The two started dating, and Cody was said to be very attracted to Jordan, but others would notice that she didn't seem to reciprocate these feelings. She started making excuses not to spend time with him, and others noticed the two never showed any affection toward each other. Despite all this, the couple got engaged a year into their relationship. They bought a house in Kalispell, Montana, near their families, and made future plans together. Jordan spoke to friends about her desire to become a mother and raise children with her new husband. Cody talked about being happy to have a family with a church-going girl. Almost everyone would say that he pretty much worshipped the ground she walked on and treated her like a princess. On June 29, 2013, the couple married despite Cody's closest friend and groomsman, Cameron Fredrickson, attempting to talk him out of it. Cameron was one of many that noticed their relationship was awkward, Jordan herself was awkward and standoffish, and often answered questions with one-word answers. Cody was outgoing and loved life, while Jordan was oddly quiet and reserved, and Cameron strongly believed the odd pair would never work out. It was evident during the ceremony that Jordan was not your typical happy, excited bride. She wouldn't make eye contact with Cody, steadily looking down and not smiling. However, Cody was delighted, grinning ear to ear, stating that he was so happy to marry the love of his life. The same day after getting married, Jordan sent a text to her maid of honor, Katrina Martinez, saying that she was not as happy about their marriage as she should be. She also told Cody she was on her menstrual cycle and they could not consummate their marriage. She sent another text to Katrina that same night, saying that if he tried anything with her, she would freak out. It's unknown what occurred over the next week, but Cody was last seen seven days after the wedding on July 7th at a local Dairy Queen with Jordan and other fellow churchgoers after the 6 p.m. church service. The following day, he strangely didn't show up for work. When his loved ones asked Jordan where Cody was, she claimed that he had simply up and left in a car the day before with a group of friends. 
She said the group of friends were from another state and she didn't know them and didn't know where they were going. She also didn't appear concerned and did not accompany his family to report him missing, which raised serious red flags. Jordan became angry when the questions kept coming and flung her wedding ring across the room. When investigators questioned her, she stated Cody had texted her, saying he had gone for a drive with a friend. This was a different story from the one she had given to his family. Conveniently, she did not have the text message to show the investigators and said they always deleted each other's texts. As soon as he went missing, his close friend Cameron, who was always skeptical of Jordan, said he instantly thought she was likely involved in Cody's disappearance. Another close friend of Cody, Eddie Alberto Colon, reported that Cody had declined an invitation to play golf on July 7th because Jordan was planning a surprise for him. Also, his stepfather, Stephen Rutledge, had asked if he wanted to go kayaking, and he again said he couldn't because his new wife had planned a surprise for him. While investigators were searching for Cody around Glacier National Park, Jordan told others that she knew where he was, that God was sending her on the path towards him. So, on July 11, 2013, she joined the search party, got into Cody's vehicle, and drove to Glacier National Park with three of her friends and Cody's 16-year-old brother, Michael. Later, these four would say that Jordan was acting very strange on the way to the park. She was happy, laughing, and singing in the car with her arm waving out the window. She drove directly to a popular area in Glacier National Park called The Loop, a hairpin turn along the Going to the Sun Road west of Logan Pass, a narrow pathway above a ravine with a 200-foot fall. Jordan looked down at Cody's lifeless and battered body lying face down in the shallow creek and calmly said, Oh my gosh, it's him. Sadly, Cody's younger brother was in such shock he could not even walk. They notified the park ranger about the body, and when the ranger arrived, he found it strange that Jordan was the one that somehow discovered his body. She said he had always wanted to see that spot before he died, so that's why she looked over the steep cliff. It would be another day before his body could be recovered because the difficult terrain required many skilled rangers, recovery personnel, special equipment, and a helicopter. Meanwhile, Jordan told one of her church friends that she had received an email from one of Cody's friends. The sender was named Tony S., who wrote that Cody was dead and had accidentally fallen off a cliff while on a trip to Glacier National Park in Montana, and there was no reason to keep searching. She had to be begged by her friend to show the email to the investigators. It would be determined that the IP address of the email that she said allegedly came from Tony was registered to her parents' home. They then determined she had typed up the email herself on her stepfather's computer and sent it to herself. On July 16th, investigators questioned Jordan once more. She explained that she knew where to find his body because she just had a feeling and knew it was the place that Cody said he wanted to see before he died. Although she denied being with him in the park, surveillance cameras clearly showed the couple entering the park in Cody's vehicle. Once investigators confronted her with overwhelming evidence against her, she confessed to pushing Cody off the cliff but claimed it was an accident. 
but it didn't appear to be an accidental fall to investigators. Not only did he land head first, but there was a black piece of cloth next to his body that could be used as a blindfold. The fabric was later tested forensically, and six human hairs were found embedded in the material. It became evident that she had lured him to the cliff, blindfolded him, told him beforehand that she had a surprise for him, and then pushed him over the cliff's edge. Jordan was arrested and charged with first-degree murder and one count of making a false statement to authorities. She also claimed that he was wearing his wedding ring when he went over the cliff, but that was later proven to be a lie. His ring was made of tungsten and would likely not have broken during the fall. She also had both of their cell phones and the car keys in her possession. She testified that she had been having second thoughts about her marriage. So, while the two went for a hike, she tried to talk to him about it, which caused a heated argument. She claims Cody grabbed her arm and that she was afraid he would pin her down. She said she didn't realize where they were standing and didn't know that he would fall off the cliff when she defended herself by pushing him with both hands. She never tried to see if Cody was alive or tell anyone. Instead, she hopped in the car and drove away like the crazy person she is. She originally pleaded not guilty, but later changed it to guilty, causing Cody's mother to crumple in her seat. In order to receive the plea deal, she had to explain her actions and said she felt physically ill at the thought of having to have sex. Several letters were written to the judge regarding personal experiences people had with Jordan. One of her friends said she loved the idea of being a bride and getting married, but sobbed on her wedding day and was worried about having to do stuff sexually. Another letter described her lack of emotions and tearfulness at his funeral, and she spent much of the time on her phone. They said she showed no sadness about his death, all while his loved ones were heartbroken. One letter described Jordan as growing up a quiet but sneaky girl who often encouraged others to do bad things. She was described as a manipulator and said she may be a sociopath. Brad Blastell, a close friend of Cody, testified that Cody was infatuated with Jordan, but it seemed one-sided. Many of her loved ones wrote letters describing her in a good way, the opposite of what others reported. It was also revealed that she had talked about killing her mother and stepfather one month before her wedding. Her attorney tried to claim his death was the result of self-defense and would later try to appeal her sentence after trial. She and her attorney attempted to withdraw the guilty plea and again plead not guilty, but the judge denied this. On March 27, 2014, she was sentenced to 30 years in federal prison in Alabama with no possibility of parole and required mental health evaluations. She was also required to pay back the $16,000 it cost to search and recover Cody's body. To this day, she has never apologized for murdering her husband of only eight days. Later, while behind bars, she did admit to pushing him off the cliff from behind with both hands on purpose. Strangely, before the wedding, Jordan and Elizabeth Shea spent months writing a song for the wedding together. She even worked extra hours to pay for the cost of the songwriting and recording fee for the custom song to be played as the first dance song. 
She took out a loan and had her mother co-sign. The song was titled You're Mine, and Elizabeth Shea, who now writes custom songs for a living, says the words to the song she helped create are just downright creepy. The song speaks of things such as, You helped me to climb higher for a better view. You're my safe place to fall. You never let me go. Although most of the lyrics were written by Elizabeth, she recalls Jordan lighting up when she spoke about surprising Cody with the song. It also is revealed during the trial that Jordan had claimed mistreatment in previous relationships, seeking sympathy by fabricating allegations of abuse by ex-boyfriends. Jordan will remain in prison until 2044 and will be 53 years old when released. Molly Nicole Watson was born on December 15, 1982, to parents Timothy and Sandra Watson. Her loved ones described Molly as someone who loved to sing, make costumes, and post video diaries on YouTube. She was a talented and creative owner of Shine Spark Polish, where she designed and formulated homemade nail polish and sold it on sites such as Etsy. In addition, she worked as a substitute teacher and had earned two college degrees. Molly's first marriage would end in divorce, and while the divorce process was still ongoing, she became pregnant with a son diagnosed with cerebral palsy. She also began dating her former childhood friend, Amber Brady, who was also married. They both would divorce their spouses and spend five years together as a couple. During their relationship, Molly started working as a corrections officer at the Moberly Area Correctional Center in Moberly, Missouri. There, she would meet a corrections officer named James Addy. The two would begin secretly dating, and she and Amber ultimately broke up. Molly would then continue her relationship with Addy, and at some point, the two got engaged. However, Molly's excitement for the wedding was not matched by Addy who didn't seem to care one way or the other. Her family was skeptical of Addie and had a bad feeling about him. He was very standoffish, would never look them in the eyes, and was very evasive. Several people were so concerned and unhappy about the marriage that they refused to even attend the ceremony. But Molly was said to be very much in love with Addie and was not swayed by people's concerns. Meanwhile, Molly hired a wedding planner and two women to do her hair and makeup for the big day. She requested a Disney-themed wedding, specifically a Beauty and the Beast theme. The wedding was to be decorated somewhat like a renaissance with a lot of burgundy and gold. Molly had even purchased two wedding dresses as she couldn't decide which to wear. Invitations went out, and Addie was in charge of sending out the invites to his side of the family. Unbeknownst to everyone, he took the invitations from Molly, and instead of sending them out, he threw them away. But Addie helped pay for a large portion of the wedding that he knew would never occur. On April 25, 2018, four days before the scheduled wedding, the couple went to apply for a marriage license. Mark Price, the Randolph County Recorder of Deeds, would later say that Addie seemed perturbed by some of his questions asked to receive a license, such as previous marriages and how they ended. Then two days later, on April 27, 2018, two days before the scheduled wedding, tragedy would strike. 
That night, Glenn McSparron was taking a shortcut from his mother's house in Monroe County, Missouri. While traveling the dark backcountry gravel road surrounded by woods, he saw a woman lying in the middle of the road. He was shocked because the woman didn't appear to be moving. When he called 911, he said he was told to check for a pulse, but he already knew she was dead and will never forget the look in her eyes. The body belonged to Molly Watson. She had been fatally shot at close range and a gun was lying on the ground behind her head. Police ruled out robbery gone wrong because Molly was found still wearing her engagement ring. A marriage license was found in the car with her and her fiancé's name, 51-year-old James Addy, and the investigation led authorities right to him. The bullet was linked to Addy's work-issued handgun. He was arrested, and it turned out that Addy had been married for the past 23 years to Melanie Addy. He had told Molly that they were divorced, and she had died in a car accident. However, Melanie was very much alive and unaware that her husband of over two decades had been in a seven-year relationship with another woman and engaged to be married. His trial was supposed to start in October 2019, but he requested a continuance, and his trial was delayed for another year. Meanwhile, Molly's loved ones had to sit on their hands and await for justice to be served for her senseless and heinous murder. Addie also requested a change of venue, moving the trial to Jefferson City, Missouri. Melanie Addie testified against her husband at trial and said she definitely believed he was capable of murder if he needed to cover up a problem. Although she said she never suspected he was having an affair, she did note that he never stayed home and was frequently away. The Addie family and Molly lived in a remote part of Missouri, but in different towns many miles apart. At the time of the trial, Melanie and James had two children together, one adult and one teenager. Despite saying she felt terrible about testifying against him, she described him as a selfish, controlling, and intimidating person. His 17-year-old daughter had to take the stand during the trial and did very well despite how hard it likely was for her. She was honest and testified that he came home late the night of the murder, appearing antsy, and quickly used bleach and washed his clothes. She had even met Molly once, who was introduced as his friend, and she had no reason not to believe that at the time. In addition, she had made her dad a t-shirt for a school project. That unique t-shirt was found near the crime scene with gun residue and Molly's blood. He didn't take the stand at trial, but read a statement in court during his sentencing, in which he read a love letter to the woman he had been convicted of killing. To me, Molly was perfect in every way that mattered. I would have done anything to make and keep her happy. Her smile was everything He also asked for a new trial, claiming his defense attorney was ineffective. Cross-examinations were either negligible or non-existent. Most statements made by the prosecution were neither questioned nor challenged. Some people from her indie nail-polished community contributed to her funeral cost to show their love for her. Sadly, the last post she put on her business Facebook page was posted six days before her murder. The post was a vacation notice that she would be unavailable for orders due to getting married that coming weekend and going out of the country for her honeymoon. 
Meanwhile, this sadistic and sorry excuse for a man knew there would be no wedding and no honeymoon, and she would never fulfill any more orders. Her father passed away in September of 2020, and her mother passed away a few months later in early 2021. Molly's son reportedly went to live with his biological father and stepmother. Addie was convicted of first-degree murder and armed criminal action. He was sentenced to life in prison without parole plus 10 years. Oksana Polodintseva was a mother of one when she began a relationship with Stepan Dolgic. However, Dolgic was behind bars for murder and robbery when the two met through a prison pen pal program. As she got to know him, she felt that she could help him change his ways once he was released. Her friend said that she was very much in love with him and was excited for his release so they could finally be together. After his release from prison, the 35- and 36-year-old married. The wedding took place in the Siberian village of Pokrovskoye, Russia. An after-wedding party took place at a private village house in Cheek. However, the joyous occasion would not last long. Dolgic, who was very drunk, became jealous of his new wife interacting with one of the male guests. He suddenly felt that she was cheating on him, and in an enraged state, he accused her of behaving incorrectly. At that moment, he grabbed her by her hair and began punching and kicking her relentlessly. Shockingly, the guests were too afraid to intervene and save her, despite his continued attack on her lasting for a very long time. A few people tried to intervene, but were quickly held back by others. The attack was brutal, and scared onlookers watched as he beat his new bride to death. He pushed her out into the street and continued his attack. At this point, some guests felt safe enough to call authorities. Once authorities were called, he took her lifeless body and drove an hour away to Novosibirsk, Russia, and dumped her body in a ravine. He was quickly detained at the scene by the Russian National Guard and fully confessed to the killing, showing no remorse. He was only given 18 years for the murder, even though he had been convicted of murder before. At the age of 52, Dawn Walker was a mother and a grandmother working as a scrap merchant living in the village of Lightcliffe in West Yorkshire, England, and was engaged to Thomas Nutt. That name couldn't ring any more true because it turns out he really was a nut, a crazy person, but sadly, Dawn would ignore all the red flags. Dawn and Thomas had been together for a couple of years and were making plans to get married. However, Dawn had some concerns and reached out through Facebook to Thomas's ex-girlfriend, Kimberly Alcock, asking why she had taken a restraining order out against him. She described him as an evil woman-hater who had nearly killed her. She talked about his brutal rages and even sent Dawn photos of her injuries from a savage beating she received. She told her to get out because he would end up killing her one day. Dawn had even told Kimberly that Thomas had scared the hell out of her, but even with that, she couldn't be persuaded to leave him. She also confided in her daughter, Kiara Lee, that she felt something bad would happen and messaged her close neighbor, June Crawshaw, 
asking if she should run. Before the wedding, June and her husband, Malcolm Crawshaw, heard screams coming from Dawn and Thomas's house. Malcolm rushed inside their home and found Dawn very distraught. Thomas claimed she was just having an asthma attack, but Dawn said he was lying and said he was actually trying to kill her. She even told her daughter that Thomas had raped her. Thomas would be arrested for the assault, and Dawn would try and retract her statements out of fear, but he was sent to prison nonetheless. Shockingly, when he got out of prison, the couple continued their plans to marry. Sadly, her fears of something terrible happening would come true on the night of their wedding. On October 27, 2021, Dawn and Thomas married. Mere hours after their wedding, Dawn would go missing and never be seen alive again. On the morning of the 28th, Dawn's daughter, Kiera, tried to reach her mother, but calls were going unanswered. At 1 a.m. on the 29th, Kiera received a text message from Dawn's phone. She knew right away it was Thomas because the text was not in the language or style of her mother. On October 30th, three days after the wedding, Thomas returned from their honeymoon, but Dawn was nowhere to be found. He then called the police, appearing to act upset, and reported her missing. He told them that she had left their house at about 9.30 a.m. to go visit her daughter, Kiera, at Wilkinson's shop nearby in Brighouse, but never made it. He said when they returned from their honeymoon, she was upset and wanted a divorce and threatened to have him put in jail, and he said she had mental issues. He initially told police that they had been on a two-day caravan honeymoon in a lay-by in Skegness, where they had watched DVDs. A lay-by is a British term for a roadside site or rest stop. The last sighting of her alive by friends or family was made by her maid of honor between 10.30 and 11 p.m. on her wedding night, likely right before she went missing. On October 31st, Halloween Day of 2021, the Crawshaws noticed Dawn's absence after he returned from their honeymoon. They saw him decorating the garden for Halloween and struck up a conversation. They said he talked about their honeymoon, but said they saw no sign of Dawn at the house. They were well aware of Thomas's violent history and at this point had become very suspicious. They then saw him pulling a suitcase into the field behind his house, which they found very strange. Upon returning, he asked Malcolm to accompany him to a cemetery between Halifax and Sedal to search for Dawn with him. At this point, June took it upon herself to find the suitcase while the two men were gone. Once she found it, she peeked inside and shockingly saw part of a human body. Instead of panicking, she calmly walked back home just as Thomas and her husband returned from the cemetery. She quickly told her husband what she saw, and he went to check the suitcase himself. Sadly, he was able to confirm the body was indeed Dawn's. Strangely, when he returned home, Thomas made his way into their home and began talking about Dawn's strange disappearance. Props to the Crawshaws for keeping it cool and calm and not alerting Thomas to the fact that they had discovered what was in the suitcase. Once Thomas left, they called the authorities. The suitcase was recovered in some bushes in a playing field behind their house just a couple of hours later. Dawn was found with severe injuries to her face and neck, and her cause of death was strangulation. The murder occurred the night of the wedding. 
After killing her, he stuffed her in the cupboard and went on their honeymoon to Skegness alone. When he returned, he stuffed her into the suitcase and placed it behind some bushes behind his house. He then covered the tracks that the suitcase made in the dirt and gravel. Unbeknownst to him, all this was being caught on surveillance video. Come to find out, she was still stuffed in the cupboard when he reported her missing. He eventually turned himself in and was arrested. At trial, Dawn's daughter told jurors how her mother and Thomas got together in late 2018 or early 2019 and said they moved in together very quickly. She said after that, everything spiraled out of control. She said she was kicked out of the house after she turned 18 because of arguments she and Thomas would get into. She said after she moved to Egypt, she returned home for a 10-day vacation, and on the second day, she noticed her mother was sick, and Thomas was shouting at her, telling her she was a different person because her daughter was there. She moved back home after becoming pregnant and once again witnessed Thomas's rage. She said Thomas made it clear that he only raged against women but treated men with respect. During his trial, jurors were told that Thomas and his ex-partner had a disagreement over what to name their child. Reportedly, he got so angry that he punched her in the face. He then took her telephone and would not let her leave the house so that she could report the incident. During another attack, he split her head open and was charged and later found guilty of common assault. He admitted that he sent Dawn's daughter the text messages at about 1 a.m. pretending to be Dawn after he killed her. Her neighbors recalled hearing noises at about 11 p.m. the night of her death. They said the bumps and thumps lasted an hour, followed by silence for the rest of the night. He was found guilty of her murder in August of 2022 and sentenced to a minimum term of 21 years minus time served. Dawn's family cheered as the verdict was read, causing Thomas to become angry and start cursing them as he was led out of the courtroom. He will now spend the next couple of decades behind bars, unable to hurt another woman. Thanks for joining me today on Southern Girl Crime Stories. Please be sure to check out my YouTube channel for these stories, along with photos of victims, suspects, location of murders, and more. As always, your support is very much appreciated, and I look forward to seeing y'all next time.